I think most of us, when we think about the devil's primary tactic to destroy people and to bring shame upon the name of Christ, we think that his primary strategy is to make people fall into sin, to fall downward. And so think about it. Think about real life here for a second. When we see people struggling, like we notice it, right? Wow, she's really struggling. Look at her down there. She's struggling with bitterness. She's just eaten up with bitterness. Or, you know, that guy, man, he, he used to be an upstanding guy. And now he's just like getting drunk all the time. He's in the bars all the time. He's just, his, his marriage is falling apart. Or she, look at her, you know, she's having an affair. And, and so we see it's very, very obvious when people fall down. And don't get me wrong, Satan is here to kill, steal, and destroy, and he'll take whatever he can get. But I think that one of, probably if not, Satan's primary tactic is to get people to fall upward. What do I mean by that, by falling upward? That was the original, see if I can do this, this is a pretty small ladder. Um, That was Satan's original plan in the Garden of Eden. When he went to Eve, he didn't try to convince her to fall into this just atrocious, horrible, evil, sinful stuff that's just repulsive that we look at and we say, this is nasty. He tried to convince her that she could be up like God, like she could know good from evil. And so he tried to convince her to fall upward. And here's what's so scary about falling upward, because we know when people fall downward usually. I mean, it's obvious. We see it. We talk about it. But when people fall upward, not only do we not recognize that self-righteousness within ourselves, but oftentimes we reward people for being up here. In the church, like this is like the person who puts in all the hours and volunteers in ministry. This is the people who give their lives oftentimes for the cause of Christ, yet so many times it's motiva- it can be motivated easily out of self-righteousness, but we say, oh, great job, man, you're, you're such a good person. You're so moral. You're, you're an example for everybody, and it continues to puff up more and more and more. And this idea of falling upward is nothing new. It's been going on since the beginning in creation, and it continues to go on now, and it was going on during Paul's time in Philippians. So in Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11, and we're going to see how the church was being tempted to fall upward, how they were being trying to be led astray to believe that you can be moral and you can downgrade Jesus. Let's, Let's upgrade law and downgrade Jesus. So let's look at this passage of scripture and and let this warning not only be a warning for the church at Philippi, but for our church, Grace Church, today. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you so much uh, for your word that gives us truth. And we admit that sin runs deep and all of us, especially me included, God, that the depths and the level of my sin uh, just are not even apparent to me without the ministry of your Holy Spirit convicting me through the word. And God, I pray that you will break us out of our sleep, spiritual slumber today. God, I pray you'll help us to see that it's all about Jesus and the Holy Spirit working in our lives, God. And may these words from Philippians chapter 3 compel us to live more passionately and devoted for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in verse 1, Paul says, 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, in a very Paul-like fashion, he starts a topic and then he kind of shifts directions. He's going to come back to this in a little bit. We've been talking a lot about joy and rejoicing, but he kind of seems to be wrapping it up. But there's still about 40% of this book left, and he's going to return to this in chapter 4. And then he says, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So paraphrasing what he's saying is, I'm going to repeat some things that you've heard before, some things that you've known before, and that's no problem because I'm looking out for your spiritual safety. I'm going to repeat these things, and, and good teachers of the Bible, this is what we do. We don't just move on from truth. We have to revisit truth again and again because as we're going to see throughout the sermon that Satan is very deceptive, and he tries to move what seems to be people who are solid in the gospel, and at one time walking with passion for him very easily can shift focus either to just carefree sinful living or to self-righteous living, thinking I'm better than them, so I'm doing all right. And so teachers repeat the same things, the basics, again and again. So he reminds them of some very important, some very, very critical things that they must know. Verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And Paul says, look out or watch out here three times in a row. He's saying, look out or watch out, pay attention, watch out for this. And then this is such a big deal that Paul uses alliteration in Greek. If you see this in the Greek words, if you do use a Bible where you can see the Greek, you'll see that all three of these words actually start with the letter K in Greek. And so he's using a tool to help them to remember, to get their attention. This is of critical importance because this is why. It goes to the heart of salvation. It goes to the heart of the gospel, and the consequences for ignoring or falling away from truth are eternal. So this is the bullseye, like we talk about in membership class. This is the center of the bullseye stuff. And so the first thing he says is to look out for dogs. Now, he's not referring to your pet dog that you have at home. These were wild animals that roamed the streets during his time, ran in packs. They just did their business all over the place. It was was just nasty, attacked people. And this was really a term originally used for the Gentiles, and he flips it around on them, and he uses it for these Jewish people. He says, he calls them evildoers. And these people are moral people. They're upstanding people, but he points out that they're evildoers, and he says they come to mutilate the flesh. Now, that is a play on words as well, but we'll return to that in just a second. I want to give you some background to the early church. This is important to understand as we look at this passage. The first believers in Jesus were Jews. And to the Jews, the law was everything. Keeping the law, the law of God, was all, that was their life. And it was essential to the covenant that Israel had with God. Now, strangely enough for us, It's hard to imagine, but circumcision was the primary sign of that covenant. So for the Jewish people to be part of covenant Israel, the nation, then circumcision was a requirement. So much so that they referred to each other as the circumcised or the circumcision. Sounds crazy. But God intended from the beginning that circumcision reflect an inward reality very similar to baptism. Baptism in itself does nothing It's a sign of something that happened within your heart. Just like Liam was baptized, it shows that he put his faith in Jesus. Circumcision was a sign of their devotion to God and their faith in God. Yet they turned this into something other than that. And so even in the Old Testament, circumcision in itself gained no favor with God. 
So they had turned it into this outward ritual. It was void completely of its intended spiritual significance. So the first Jesus followers who went out into the world as missionaries, they had a hard time reaching Gentile believers. These non-Jews were very, very tough. Acts 10 talks about that. And so it was a while before any Gentiles came to Jesus. But God revealed to Paul that if non-Jewish people turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, they were accepted as members of God's family without the necessity of becoming a Jew and without the necessity of the men being circumcised. That was radical. But there are Jewish people who claim to be Christians, claim to be following Jesus, who insisted that the Gentile Christians must become Jews. These people were called Judaizers, and they insisted that Gentile believers had to be circumcised and had to obey the law. And their teaching was abhorrent to Paul. Paul confronted it again and again and again. This kind of came to a head in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem when he dealt with this issue, and they dealt with this issue. So while God's law is holy and righteous and good, as Romans 7 says, the old covenant pertaining to the things that God had given had now been replaced with the Holy Spirit had come. God had written the law upon our hearts. The law was there to point out and show our need for Jesus. It was, uh, Paul says it was a curse rather than a blessing because it, people were unable to keep it. It was impossible to keep it because it showed God's holy standard, who God was and their inability to do that. So whenever Paul would go into a community and he would plant a church there, it wasn't long before here comes the Judaizers with their knives in hands, literally like saying, okay, we got to turn these Gentiles into Jews. We got to circumcise these people. And so he uses this play on terms, circumcision, very close to the word mutilate. It's like a, a rhyming thing. And he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. They don't circumcise, they mutilate. And so he's showing them that this is of no use because mutilating they're mutilating literally the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're destroying people's faith. And, you, and he clearly communicated, you don't have to be circumcised to be the son of Abraham. And so it's always the devil's strategy to take truth and twist it. In this sermon, we're going to look at several of Satan's tactics, falling upward being the big theme, but twisting truth, taking truth and slightly modifying it in order to, tr to trick people and deceive people. Because Satan is a deceiver. He's the great deceiver. But Paul says, as opposed to these Judaizers, these false teachers, he says in verse 3, for we, we are the circumcised. So why does Paul say that he and fellow Jesus followers, true Jesus followers, were the true circumcised? Look at the verse. The verse gives us the answer. Here's why. Because the true, truly circumcised, they worship by the Spirit of God and they glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. So he lays this out for us. He says, here's what the deal is. Here are those who are truly circumcised in the flesh. Now, the term flesh throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is used a lot. This term is used, and it's actually used in many different nuances and ways. And so sometimes when we're reading, we can see it in one place, and it means something totally different in another place. So you need to be careful of this, because I could say today, I could say, I'm here in the flesh. And there's nothing evil or wrong about me being here in the flesh. I'm literally here with you. 
But flesh in scripture is also used to show like this, as J.I. Packer says, this anti-God energy that exists in us. Even as Christians, we can have this anti-God push in our life and this pull in our life. And if you're following Jesus, you well are aware of that fact in your life, that truth in your life. So when scripture speaks of flesh in a negative manner, I think right here in this verse, we find a perfect definition for this. Flesh is doing anything apart from the Holy Spirit's guidance that's for the glory of Jesus. Look at the verse. It's anything that we do that's apart from the Holy Spirit's guidance for Jesus's glory. And so when you think about the flesh, and I think about the flesh, we think about falling downward again. We think about, oh man, these repulsive sins, which they are sins, and they're repulsive, and they sent Jesus to the cross. But falling upward also are repulsive sins that sent Jesus to the cross. And so the deception of, yes, we see these things, but we don't see these acts that are done for our own glory, our own efforts, for our own, let me check off my box, I attended church, am I not a good person? Right? I, you know, look around. All of my neighbors, they're not going to church. I'm going to church. And you're falling upward, and we don't realize we're falling upward. It's deceptive. So remember this definition. The flesh is anything apart from the Holy Spirit and Spirit's guidance for the glory of Jesus. Those can be great things. That can be cleaning a building for Jesus. If you're not doing it for Jesus' glory, it could be coming to church. It could be sitting down with your family over dinner. Those things could all be actions of the flesh when they're not done for the glory of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that later. So Paul shows by his own personal examples and illustration how that living even this impeccable moral life is flesh, and he ultimately referred to it as garbage because it's not done for the glory of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So now he's going to list seven achievements, these seven moral things that he's accomplished with great effort, with great diligence, with focusing upon God during this. Look what he says. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He had that right. He's of the people of Israel. I'm especially important because I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I've memorized the law. I don't just keep it. I memorize it. I know it. As to zeal, I've got passion. I'm a persecutor of the church because these people are against God's law. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's blameless. Compare your moral resume to Paul's. There's no way that you measure up. He can say, I'm blameless. I've done everything I possibly can. Humanly speaking, Paul had about as much righteousness as one could possess. And all of this was where he used to place his confidence and his hope. And that's the devil's strategy, is to convince people of their self-righteousness. It's to convince you, because you do some spiritual things each week, that you're righteous. Let me give you just some practical characteristics of a self-righteous person. They do not see their walk with God as a community project. I don't need other people. It's, it's me and God, right? We, we got this together. I don't need others. They're sinners, right? I don't work well with others. Bring others along. Things just don't go as good because they slow me down. 
They constantly believe that they're right and they know best. They're resistant to change. They do not respond well when reminded that they need to change. Nah, that never goes well, does it? They are not patient with those who mess up, struggle with sin, or have lost their way. These are the self-righteous people who are, who are quick to criticize and say, look at them. Look at, look, look, at, look at them, right? How could they? How could they be like that? Oh, my goodness. I could never be down there. That's what they're saying in their minds. They will constantly wonder why God has singled them out for difficulties. When tough things come, they do not see a need to admit or confess their sins. And they constantly point out the sins of others with an air of superiority. If the devil can get us to take our eyes off Jesus and our desperate need for the cross, that's where he wants you. He would much rather have you here than there. Because here, you're rewarded. You're put into positions of authority in the church. You may even be given a Bible and say, teach some people because you're such a good person. You're admired. You're looked up to by the community. This is a great time to make a practical reminder for parents here. Are you making good little Pharisees or are you making Jesus followers who are humble? Or are they just the, the kids that you jump onto for doing wrong and you're like, clean up your act. And there's no talk to the heart, which is where the behavior originates from, Scripture says. You just want to make sure they don't embarrass you or bring shame to your name, and they're just good little moral law keepers. That's a, a serious danger, is it not, as parents? Because it's easier. Stop! Don't do that, right? Stop doing that because you're annoying me, right? And that's really translated, right? But there's no really desire to dig underneath and say, okay, let's talk about that, that behavior for a second. Let's, let's see where that, you know, what's, what's going on. Are you, are you talking to Jesus? Are you praying? Here's what Jesus said in his word. But it, that's hard. That's difficult. And some of you are like, you're not qualified to do that. Yes, you are. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the word, and you're qualified to speak to the heart. And so please, please, let's make sure, as a youth pastor for many years, honestly, I saw so many parents who, if their kid made it through high school without getting pregnant they didn't get drunk, or at least people didn't know about it. They kept their social media pretty, pretty clean and, and straightforward. They were pretty happy with that, right? Like, you know, my kid, he, he did good. He, he made it through. And, and that's such a low bar. I mean, that's, that's a disaster that Satan loves because he just grows up into a little self-righteous adult who doesn't understand that the heart is where the issues of life come from. So Paul knew that all that mattered was Jesus. And that's why he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, all this resume, this impeccable resume I had, this religious resume that I, I spent my life building, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul could have stayed where he was. He was on top of his class. He was well-known in his circles. He was, if there was a magazine that came out every month in Israel that showed like the religious magazine, Paul's face would have been on that magazine all, all the time because he was the top of the club. He truly was the top of the top. But he says, all of this, I count loss. I put in the liability column. It's, it's loss. It's garbage. All these credentials are worthless. 
All of his past effort to earn God's favor, to, to make God happier. He says, these are just liabilities that I spent years thinking that I was getting closer to God when in fact these things were moving me actually further and further from God. And he expands on this list of things that he listed out, and he expands it to everything in verse 8. He says, everything that I've done apart from Jesus goes into this lost column. Why? He missed the point. The point is Jesus. Everything pointed to Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he burned his resume. He severed his ties with his old life. He, he said, these things were rubbish. And that's a, a nice word. It was really dung. The, the original word is, it's dung. It's detestable. And all this stuff is worthless. And it's a, it's a liability compared to knowing Jesus. No matter how hard he worked, and no matter how sincere and zealous he was, it was all just loss. It was detestable because of the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ that Paul describes here is so much more than just some intellectual, like, I understand Jesus lived and he died and he rose again. It's so much more than just this distant, sterile knowledge of Jesus. He, he's really getting at this personal, relational knowledge with Jesus. And it's so hard for those who aren't seeking God on a regular basis, and I say daily basis, just seeking Jesus to, to really connect with this because even for those of us who make it so much part of our life's discipline to be with Jesus every single day, sometimes Jesus can feel distant and he can be feel removed from us. And so when you throw out a term like knowing Jesus and, and this personal, intimate knowledge with Jesus, some people just like, I don't get that. Like that just seems foreign to me. I don't understand where the line is between intellectual and like really knowing Jesus. Last Wednesday night at Refuge, Jeb Smith did a great job, by the way, speaking on this very passage. And so I went over and heard Jeb speak and did a great job. And afterwards we were talking and I, uh, I said something to Jeb about this. I said, you know, this idea of knowing Jesus. I said, that's really a hard concept for people, especially men. It's hard to like knowing Jesus. It's hard enough in real life relationships to be fully in and committed and sit there and, and, and talk and love this person, right guys? I mean, so for somebody who we don't even see and physically touch, like how much harder is that? And, and, and Jeb said something, it, it was so simple, but it was so profound. He said this, it, it just like blew me away. He's like, that's why prayer is so important. That's why prayer is so important. Is that not simple but complex at the same time? That our connection to knowing Jesus is through our prayer, through knowing Jesus by talking to Jesus, by being with him. But let's be honest. Like Many of us are really good at reading our Bibles, and then we flip from our Bible to the devotion, then we flip over to Piper, and we read Piper, and we read this, and we read that. But when it comes to our prayer life, it's the hardest thing in the world. Our minds are bouncing everywhere. We we're, we're can't stay focused. We're all over the place. But that is the very time when the word and the truth, and as we should be reading the word and bathed in prayer, but we disconnect and we like, okay, I got stuff to do. I got, I got things to do. And we quickly go through it and we're out the door. And I would say that is the most important thing when it comes to knowing Jesus. 
In fact, I, I wrote this down. I think your private prayer life says more about your relationship with Jesus than your theological knowledge or your ministry involvement. Let's say that again. Your private prayer life says more about your relationship with Jesus than your theological knowledge or your ministry involvement. You know, I know some people who love theology. They love to dig into the word, but when you ask them about their prayer life, they're like, oh, not so good. I'm going to challenge us. It's so easy to fall upward. And it's so easy to fall upward with knowledge theological knowledge, good reading books that have so much rich and deep theology. But we can begin to feel prideful. I encourage you, here's what I want you to do, is check your prayer life. Look at your prayer life. Why are you not talking to Jesus? If you love him so much, if you're growing in all this knowledge of him, that should equal just this relationship with him that's real and it's personal. And I'm not beating you up because I am right here with you. My prayer life is tough. It's difficult. I do a great job of getting up at the same time every morning, opening my Bible. I'm on a, a reading group with some other people. We read. I almost always write a little comment where we can share a discussion. And, and then I turn over and I read New Morning Mercies, and I read the Scripture on that. But oftentimes my prayer life is where it suffers. And it makes me just check myself. How much of this? Because for me, it's way worse than you. Because it's my job, Right? It's my job to do this day in and day out. So it's tough for me, but it's tough for you as well. Just fall into the habits and the routine and lose the intimacy of our Savior and knowing him. Paul was all about that. And here's why. Here's why sinners can even pray in the first place. Verse 9 is one of the richest, most powerful verses in all of Scripture. He says, and be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, this is why I can know God in the first place. You know, the term religion Biblically speaking, it's not a bad term. It's not. It's actually a very neutral term. It occurs five times in the Bible. And commands, doctrines, structures, rituals, these things are not necessarily bad things. Sometimes we think, oh, religion is rituals. Religion is structure. But God's not opposed to those things. What grace is opposed to is, is effort. It's, I mean, earning, not effort. Grace never opposes putting effort into our holiness. But it's thinking we earn something by doing that. But this term religion, I'm going to use it because it's taken on culturally kind of this idea of just going through spiritual dogma and going through routines and rituals mindlessly without really focusing on Jesus. So when I use that term, know that I realize that religion is not a bad term necessarily, but I'm going to use it the way we culturally think about it. So religion is about me. So ultimately, religion focuses in on my efforts, what I do, whereas the gospel focuses completely upon Jesus. And so Paul is pointing out that no one can be justified or declared righteous before God by religion. Christ's righteousness, and we sang about this, but we could have missed it. Christ's righteousness credited to your account, the, the theological word is imputed to your account, given to you at salvation, is all the righteousness that you'll ever get and ever need. 
When Christ died on the cross and we put our faith in Christ, Jesus, he declared us righteous and holy. And so no matter what happens in our life, no matter whether you fail to do your quiet time tomorrow, whether you fall into some of these sins here, if you've truly placed your faith in Jesus, you have all the righteousness that you can ever get. It's been imputed to you. It's been given to you. Sinners by nature, we can't make ourselves right with a holy God. There's nothing that we can do to please him and honor him. We have no righteousness, Paul said, of our own because all this law keeping doesn't measure up. It just shows us the fertility of trying to do it. We need Christ's righteousness. Look at verse 9 again. Having a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. Imputed to us, credited to us. So God takes the debt we owe, which is insurmountable, and he takes that and puts it on Christ at the cross, and then he gives us 100% fully based on Jesus and what he did, his righteousness. So if you're in Christ, if, you're, if you've been saved, you have the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus took the wrath of God that you deserved. You couldn't pay the price. He took it, and we received his righteousness. Sadly, half of the people in our world that claim to be Christian, to identify as Christian, do not believe in this idea of imputed righteousness. They do not believe that Jesus gave his righteousness on your account. Here's what they're taught. Righteousness comes gradually to the believer through obedience, confession, penance, and other sacraments. This is called infused righteousness. So it says, me and God are going to work together to be righteous enough. But the, and that's, there's nowhere you'll find this concept of infused righteousness in the Bible. And here's the thing. The devil literally has preachers in churches. Did you know that? His strategy is to place false teachers in places of biblical authority. How do you know that, John? 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen and 15. Look it up later. Study it. He's saying is that he puts, Satan puts people in moral authority here who will teach false teaching, give false teaching to lead people astray thinking that there's no such thing as Christ's imputed righteousness, that you were not given the righteousness of Jesus at salvation. Instead, like you got to do all this stuff and earn all this stuff in order to be accepted by God. And that's exactly what the Judaizers were doing in Paul's day, and it still happened today. And what happens, religion confuses these theological terms of justification and sanctification. Justification is where you get accepted by God only because of the work that Jesus did on your, on your behalf. You're adopted into his family. After which, necessary sanctification comes, where you live a new life with God in relationship and progressively become more like Jesus in your life. But some people worry. They're like, this concept of imputation, that you get all the righteousness of, of, God, of Jesus at one time and all of a sudden you're righteous, that seems like that's going to lead people to really just jump in sin because like nothing can happen. God's okay with them, right? Well, Paul addressed that. It's not an option. He says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he says, and we, are we to continue to sin that grace can just keep increasing and growing? He says, by, by no means. He says, impossible. Impossible. Here's why. How can we who died 
to sin live in it any longer? How can we keep doing it? Here's what the point Paul's making is at salvation, when you received the righteousness of God, let's go back to verse three. What happened was that the Holy Spirit moved into you, right? The Holy Spirit came into your life. And because the Holy Spirit is in your life, you're a new creation, Scripture says, in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has begun. And your goal, this Holy Spirit, is going to work and work and work in your life to bring glory to Jesus through the things that you do. So while you can sin, and God's opinion of you doesn't change your relationship, you're still his son and daughter, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be miserable because salvation makes you a fighter against sin. It has to. Because the Holy Spirit, the warrior, is inside of you. And he's warring against the sin. So Satan's strategy, he wants to convince religious people that it's, it's safe to live in sin. Just, you're good, go ahead, live in it. God's forgiven you, he's forgiven you past, present, and future, you're good to go. Satan's strategy is to do that. But sanctification, scripture clearly says, will take place. It makes us fighters. And then, finally, the devil's strategy is to convince religious people that they can just coast into heaven. Coast into heaven. What am I talking about? Look at verse 10 and 11. Paul says, that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. When Paul says in verse 11, that by any means possible, it literally is saying, if by any means possible. What's he talking about? Well, this is one of those passages of Scripture where there's probably eight to ten different interpretations that people can have. D.A. Carson says, Paul is uncertain as to the timing and circumstances of this experience, this experience of the resurrection of the dead. He says, Will Christ return in his lifetime, or will he die and be resurrected when Christ returns? So that makes sense, doesn't it? And I'm not saying that I'm right in what I'm going to propose here, but I'm saying that you got to listen to what the Scripture says, and then you can form your own opinion, okay? So, so it may seem paradoxical to you for what we've said, but stay with me here. I want you to listen to Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. All these are in the app. Look these Scriptures up later. He says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So he says, if, he says, you will be presented if you continue in the faith. All right, let's go to another. Paul in Roman, or I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Now, I would love to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right, two more. I could do more. Two more. Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence, confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hebrews 3, 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. I think Paul is not saying anything new here. What he's saying is perseverance is evidence 
that we're truly in Christ. Persevering. Now, Paul's saying this and he's saying, man, if I obtain the resurrection of the dead, I think if you were standing before Paul and you said, Paul, are you going to be raised from the dead? I think he would say, yes, I am going to be raised from the dead. How do you know that, Paul? Because all of Jesus, Jesus's righteousness credit to my account. That's my only hope. All this stuff I do doesn't matter. It's only Jesus. It's all Jesus. So Paul, why did you say this, like, that this could possibly happen? I think a couple of things. It shows his humility. He's not so arrogant to think that he's just going to coast in, that he just does, just can lay back and, oh, I got my salvation. I can just coast the rest of my life. Because as I said, the Holy Spirit makes us fighters. And Paul knew, even the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian to ever live, that he could shipwreck his, shipwreck his faith. He said that, that. He said those things. And so it shows great humility, and I think it's also a warning and a teaching for the church and for us, that if we think that we can just coast into heaven one day, then we've missed out on what salvation is all about and what happened in the first place. And I think, to me, the scripture that makes this, brings us together the best, is from the words of the apostle Peter. In 2 Peter, and this will be on the screen, 1, 9 through 10, Peter is laid out in this passage, he's saying, Keep adding to your salvation. You've, you've been saved. You have the righteousness of Christ. Now keep working and adding to these things, meaning not adding to your salvation, but adding to your holiness. Become more and more holy. And he says this, for whoever lacks these qualities, all these things he's talking about, he says, you're nearsighted. He, he says, uh, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, if you're just laying back and you're like, I can just coast into heaven, like it's Jesus, you know, he, he died on the cross. I believe that. that you know, I, I got that down. I did that. I'm just, you know, so I'm just going to live my life, right? I, I'm, I'm, I got my fire insurance. I'm going to live my life. And we think that we can just coast that way. Then Peter says, that's a really scary spot. He says, you're blind. You're nearsighted and you're blind because you're in a place where you're just like, I don't even know whether I can really can say I'm a believer here or not because my life doesn't show anything, any of the evidence that the Holy Spirit's in me fighting to get me to hate sin and pursue Jesus with everything. So therefore, look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You will never fall. So I think let Scripture talk for itself. I think it's saying there is we all have to realize that perseverance of the saints, continuing in Christ, is evidence that we truly know Christ in the first place. Now, it's not our job to be the judge of everybody out there like, oh, that guy hasn't been to church in three weeks. Is he, is he really a believer? I don't think it's our position. But it is our job to examine our own hearts and know where we stand. Be careful if you think you stand lest you fall. And here's the key, I think. If we focus in on our perseverance, we miss the point. It just turns into more self-righteousness. I, I heard Pastor John say, man, I gotta work harder. I gotta do more. I gotta, I gotta keep climbing that ladder and be holy. And we miss the point. We're focusing again. We're turning it again into self-righteousness, falling upwards. What we do is we focus on Jesus and his glory, and his grace. And in that comes just this passion. Like, how, like Peter said in, in the Gospels, he said, where else could I go, Jesus? 
Peter, are you going to leave? Where else is there to turn? You're all I got. I may stumble and I may fall and I may even deny you momentarily, but where else would I go? Jesus, you're the only thing that matters. And so here's our challenge, our heart and our hands together. Please do this. In prayer, review the list that I showed, characteristics of the self-righteous. And ask the Holy Spirit. Literally pray and ask him, Holy Spirit, show me where I've wrongfully placed my righteousness, where I have misplaced it and put it upon myself rather than upon Jesus. Show me where my righteousness is more important than Jesus' righteousness, where instead of banking my hope completely upon Christ, I'm earning and working, thinking that some way I can build a resume that God will be happy with. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I admit, we admit, all of us can fall upward so easy. That we can take our eyes off you and really the, the, the most concrete way that we see we do that is just our, our prayer life. That we don't want to talk to you. We want to just do and be busy, just climbing the ladder. And God, I pray you'll help us to truly, truly examine our hearts. And God, build our righteousness upon your solid rock, upon Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And through our faith in him, we know that that's our only hope in this life and in the next. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.